Good morning. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for our time together today. I pray that as uh, I give the message, Lord, that you will prepare our hearts to hear what you would say. Lord, that you would speak through me um, and that it would just flow out in your name. Amen. Start today with a quote from uh, Christian philosopher Chris um, Esther Meek. Modern Christian search is for comprehensive Christian information and to get it all straight. Is that it? Is that all there is? If we just get it all straight, then we're good. There's more, right? To continue that quote, the goal is not certain comprehensive information. There's something more, better than that. You don't settle for less. You hold out for more, and that more is ongoing communion. So it's not. She's not saying that getting comprehensive information isn't important. She's saying that that's not where we stop. We go on. We get deeper. That there's ongoing communion. That's what we get to look forward to. Now, to me, there are implications of this. If this is true, we should see that, right, as the Bible talks to us. And so if it's not just head knowledge, if there's something more than just head knowledge, that the way the Bible talks to us shouldn't be just head knowledge. It should go deeper. It should blur the lines. It should blur the lines in such a way that you see the non-physical world and the physical world starting to blur, and you can't always tell where one stops and one begins. Okay. So, if that's true, we should see it. We should see lots of examples. So here we go. Ready? Start with the first one, Jesus' resurrection. He dies, he rises again. Pretty physical things. And yet, there's implications for that, right? That's not all it was. It wasn't just death and resurrection. He did something for us, something spiritual. Right? There's more to it. So Dan and my father have talked about worship and the fact that worship is not just a hard attitude. That as you look through the Bible, you see things like bowing and standing and dancing, that those are an expectation of how worship looks and what it is. You see, you go to, to, to 1 Samuel, David plays the harp for Saul, and whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. He did something physical that had much more implications than just physical. So again, we can see this blurring of the lines. Laying on of hands. Hopefully, you don't see it as, a, say, a back massage for people. It's more than that, right? <laughs> what about anointing with oil? Hopefully not for just dry skin. Baptism, more than a bath, more than a swim. Much more than that, right? That there's, there's this... We're doing something physical, and it has greater than that. The Lord's Supper isn't a snack or a meal. Yes, it is, and yet it's more. Marriage. Song of Songs talks about how, you know, it's, it's this metaphor, this amazing metaphor about how Christ can search for us. And another way of also reading that is that, that it's how we should pursue wisdom. It's a metaphor. And then you get to Hosea, 
And Hosea isn't told, be metaphorical. He said, go get, <laughs> go get a wife of whoredom. He's not told just to think about it. He's told to do something, to show us. It's, it's getting in there in some way. Again, I'm not telling you all to go get a wife of whoredom, just to be clear on that, okay? I'm just saying, like, the Bible doesn't leave us with this head knowledge. It does more than that. Continuing on, we've got parenting. Um, you know, he could have used a lot of things, and in the New Testament, I, uh, my dad's talked about how, like, there's this, uh, all of a sudden, God the Father, um, God as our Father, uh, becomes a new, uh, it's used all over the place. Um, I have a great dad, so I learned a lot about how to, what a father, a great, a godly father is, and being a parent has taught me even more, um, and I don't think that that's accidental that God talks to us that way. He's using those things that we can relate to. Suffering. I know that one's a really popular one. <laughs> he shapes us through our suffering, just as Jesus was. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So we're shaped through suffering. Stephen talked to us a couple weeks ago about how we can be shaped through sickness and pain, that as we dive deep and we search for him and for our healing, that we know him better, and not just head knowledge, but so much more. Sin. What about the other side? Sin. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why so many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So something you do here can influence death and spiritual and it's all can intertwined here time what about time so you remember that the death and resurrection happens during passover but at the same time during that portion there is a festival called the feast of first fruits um, i know you guys all love leviticus so you've been reading it recently but there's a festival during the Passover called the Feast of First Fruits, and it's a celebration of that beginning of the harvest. That first fruits is, and, and so you give those to God. That's the, that's the thing you do. And then 50 days later, the Feast of Weeks, or in Greek, Pentecost. Okay, so there's time. You've got Feast of First Fruits and Pentecost. Now there's a couple ways to think about this, and so we're going to talk through each one of them. The first one is, Jesus is the first fruits. He's this thing. He's, you get to see the, the bodily resurrection in him. And it's the thing we hold out hope that we will see at the end. All of us will have that bodily resurrection. And there's more. The disciples in Luke, Jesus goes to them and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then at Pentecost, they receive the full outpouring of the 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 Holy Spirit. So they get the first fruits and then they get the full harvest. Another way to read this, the disciples, the 12, I know it's 11 at this point, I know one's not there, but representatively are the representatives of Israel. They're the first converts, if you will, the first ones who really are starting to understand there's something different beyond he's a Messiah. And then at Pentecost, you see 3,000 Jews from all over the world 
receive and understand this in a new way. So you get to see the first fruits and you see a greater harvest. So he's working in time. He doesn't just reveal himself all at once. He reveals himself to us through time. Now, I want to I add a clarification here just so no one gets, you know, like, is too concerned. The Bible talks in such a way that we also know that there are first fruits and that we are, or that he's, you know, in um, 2 Thessalonians, he's talking to them and saying they are the first fruits. So I'm not saying that in Pentecost, the harvest was finished and we're done, but there is something about understanding how God works through time and his revealing is in such a way that he doesn't do it, boom, one giant download and you're done, but that there's, it, it continues throughout. <clears throat> so what about metaphors? Metaphors are supposed to be metaphorical and stay such. A couple of months ago, we talked about power over the snake and how as we're reading through the Bible, we're constantly looking for that person who, unlike Adam and Eve, have power over the snake. And it becomes a metaphor. But if you go to Exodus, Moses throws a staff on the ground and it turns into a snake and he picks it up. He has power over the snake. And you go to Paul, and when he's shipwrecked in Malta, he reaches in, he's getting, getting wood for the fire, and he's bitten by a snake. He should die, does he? He doesn't die. No, he grabs that snake, and of all the places he throws it, he throws it on the fire. Come on, is it metaphor? <laughs> or is it more? <laughs> There's a blurring, and we can't separate that. So the Bible Project puts it this way. Rich images from biblical poetry are rooted in images from early biblical narratives. That is how metaphor works in the Bible. You need narratives to understand the poetic images, and the images reveal deeper meaning in those narratives. Now that's a lot, so let me walk you through a little bit more example here. Light. In Genesis 1, you see the movement where God says the first command he gives is, let there be light. And there is. And then, each day, it's evening to morning. Evening to morning. It's from darkness to light. There's a movement throughout history of a movement from darkness to light. And we are looking for that final day when light rules and reigns over all. And so that's what we're, we're looking for. And so then you get to see some of these psalms that start talking in this metaphorical way. Say that? Yeah. And also in, in some of the other New Testament ones. Who alone has immortality? Who dwells in unapproachable light? Whom no one has ever seen or can see to be him be honor and eternal dominion. Psalm 36, 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So it's a metaphor and it's more. Now, judgment. Judgment is one of these things. Psalm 37, 6. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. So we have this thing, this narrative that shaped our metaphor. Now let's go back in and see how metaphor shapes the narrative. Sodom and, oh, go back one. Sodom and Gomorrah. <clears throat> Genesis 19:15. As morning dawned, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, up, take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And then just in case we didn't get it the first time, Genesis 19:23 to 24, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord of, out of heaven. So there's judgment as light is coming. 
Egypt and the Red Sea has the same type of thing. Exodus 14, 23 to 25, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, as the sun is getting ready to rise, <clears throat> the Lord, and on a pillar of the fire of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Blessing. God's light can also be seen as blessing. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. So you get to Jacob. And this is right before um, he's wrestling with God. Okay, so he's wrestling with God. And he said, then Jacob asked, please tell me your name. But he said, what, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him <laughs> as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. So light is judgment, light is blessing. So you see how you get this perspective of, of what light is, then you get metaphor, and then the metaphor helps us to see more in the narrative. Okay, so maybe another one. Jesus has power over the darkness. John 1, 4-5, In him was life, and that was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So if you see Jesus going into the darkness, you should expect that it doesn't overcome him. Luke 4.40, now when the sun was setting, all those who, who were, had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. In context, Luke 4 and 5 shows how Jesus has power over unclean spirits, overcoming temptation, power over, which is, you know, power over the snake, leprosy, and all, and actual darkness. So here you get a list of all the different ways that Jesus has power over those things that stand against God, including actual darkness, which is shaped in Genesis 1. So we get to see how light can be used throughout and how it shapes, you know, shapes things. Maybe a strange way to think for us. So biblical knowing. Uh, Drew Johnson is an associate professor of biblical and theolo theological studies at King's College, and he's the one who has a major influence over how I think about this stuff here. So um, Abraham is talking with God, and God says to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the... Um, so he, here God has told him that he's going to possess the land. And again, Abraham goes, how am I supposed to know? And God doesn't say, let me show you a vision, or because I'm God. He goes, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon, so that I can make a covenant with you. He's doing something physical to show him. He's not just interacting with him. Feast of booths. Again, Leviticus. We love Leviticus. Um, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the peoples of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, if I'm teaching my kids, normally if my kids want to know something, I just tell them. And God says, so your generations may know 
They're going to live in tents so that they know you lived in tents. It's a different way of thinking about things. Maybe it changes how you teach your kids. It does me. <clears throat> Again, flowing through. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus doesn't say, well, remember me by remembering me. He says, do this in remembrance of me in the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> so if you start to think this way, and you start to see the fact that, the, that God doesn't want us to know just head knowledge, but wants us to teach us through more than that. Then when you read Leviticus, it's an entire book of rituals that impact every aspect of a Jewish person's life. Which, if you look sort of back at that list of things we covered, which is sort of like that, which is it covers every aspect of our lives. God doesn't expect us to only know him through his, our heads, but much more. <clears throat> okay, so if we keep going that same way, you start to see ritual and liturgy in a very different light. Two quotes that I'll share with you here, um, both from a, a guy named James Smith. Um, Spirit charged rituals are tangible ways for God to get a hold of us and reorient us and empower us to be his image bearers. They are the ways for the spirit to meet us where we are as embodied creatures of habit. So they get a hold of us and they reorient us, not just by getting something in our heads, but more. Expanding on that, spiritual discipline, disciplines and liturgical practices are not just expressive means of showing my devotion to God. They are, and yet they're more. They are formative practices through which the Spirit rehabituates and re-narrates my identity. Do you see the Lord's Supper as just something you're doing as a means of showing devotion to God? Or do you also see it as something that's actually reshaping you? Because it is. And that's why the elders have done things like, say, not just do as in one way, but in different ways, because we're trying to, you know, that we're allowing God to rehabituate and re-narrate our identity in the way that he wants to, to shape us through this world into who he wants us to be, to allow us to have our true identity filled out and lived out. Another way to think of this, um, Drew Johnson is the one who puts this one out for me. Uh, Karate Kid, the movie, the original one. For those who haven't watched it, um, the young boy who wants to learn karate ends up with an um, odd teacher who doesn't teach him in the way that he expects to be taught. He wants to be taught by doing the forms he knows everyone else learns to do karate. This guy doesn't teach him that way. He says, here, let me teach you by painting a fence. And paint the fence up and down and up and down. And then he gets to wash cars, and he washes the cars like this. And at the end of the day, he starts to think, I think this guy is just trying to get lots of manual labor out of me, which may be partially true. But he starts to realize, as the guy starts to actually teach him, or as start, starts to go into another level, that all that, all that pointless work had shaped him and made him more then he realized these movements had now become part of him. It had, it had ingrained in him. Ritual and liturgy are like that. They somehow get inside of us, and as, as um, James Smith says, they reorient us and empower us. So, now, 
what do we do with this? So specifically living out the law portion, okay? So I just talked a decent amount about the law. The law, what do we do with that? Okay, so how, do, how, do, how, does, um, how do people in the New Testament live it out? All right, well, Paul, he reads in Deuteronomy that you shouldn't muzzle an ox when it's threshing wheat, i.e. it can eat as it works. And he takes that and says, you should pay pastors. <laughs> okay? Jesus in the leper's house. Now, all of you, since Leviticus is in your top five favorite books of all time, <laughs> remember that there is a, you, you can have leprosy of the skin, you can have leprosy of the clothing, and you can have a leprous house. Okay, so since you don't probably remember that, leprous house has sort of like three steps if the house is you know, continuing to have the leprous uh, affliction. The first one is you empty the house, the, the priest comes and inspects it. They give it some time, he comes back again, the house is still empty, and if there's still a growth, you remove the plaster, the stones, and put on new plaster and new stones. And finally, if he comes back, and after all that, it's come back again, you destroy the house and carry it out of the city. Now, how does Jesus live this out? I'm glad you asked. John 2, 3, 2, 13, um, very early on in Jesus' ministry, he goes to the temple, and what does he do? He drives everyone out of the temple. And then later, in Matthew, he comes again another time, he drives everyone out of the temple, and he heals the blind and the lame, i.e., he repairs the house. And he comes again, and this time, he foretells the destruction of the temple. So, how do we do it? what do we do with the law? We allow it to get so inside of us that we can live it out in crazy and amazing ways, the way Paul and Jesus does. Okay? It's not something that we just leave to the side. We allow it to get inside of us, to in, in, ingrain in us. Um, and I'm really excited to see how you all do that. Keeping going. Spiritual gifts. So we have a list of spiritual gifts. Discernment, faith, healing, knowledge, miracles, prophecy, teaching, tongues, tongues interpretation, wisdom. That's 1 Corinthians 12. It's a good list. It's a good list. And yet... Mr. Miller and my father have both talked about how that list should go deeper. And I think that's true because if you look at all of us, we're all made in the image of God, and yet in the way we image out the, our God is pretty different. It's more than 12 different, you know, more than a couple different ways. It's a lot of different ways. So I would expect to see the spiritual gifts that way. <clears throat> Mr. Hauser shared about... Uh, how there, he saw some different, uh, that there were different ways where this guy was basically going through um, and everywhere he went, whether he was in the military or whether he was when he was actually in the police force, everywhere he went, both sides basically, no one died. <laughs> Amazing things. Amazing things that we, I want to I suggest that we should expect from that. Um, Dan, Dan has talked about how... Um, he feels that God's calling him to a new, uh, a new song, to more. And, and you know, already, uh, you know, what, what his worship is, is you know, as, as he leads us, is pretty amazing. Um, but I can't, I can't wait to see what that deeper and deeper level looks like. 
Okay, go to the story of Gideon. Gideon's a weird story. Gideon is going to attempt, attack the Midianites, and God says, well, if you're afraid, go down, to the temp, uh, go down and listen, and you'll hear something that'll make you feel better. So he goes down, and he hears a dream, and the dream is that a loaf of bread falls on the Midianite camp. A loaf of bread? Come on, I mean, the densest bread I've ever had, the driest, most, you know, oldest bread is still like, ow, that, that didn't feel good, but not much more. Even if it was a giant cracker and it fell on your tent. <laughs> Come on. So what's going on here? You go back to the beginning of the story of Gideon. What's he doing? He's, he's threshing wheat. Now, he gets all of these people who want to fight and go attack the Midianites. And he begins to thresh them. <laughs> and by the end, he's turned them into a loaf. A loaf. What if we were allowing all of our gifts, whatever they are, even making bread, to be used as spiritual gifts for God? Can you imagine? <clears throat> So what I'd suggest to you is use the gifts that God gives you, innate or otherwise. And I'll give you an example. So um, Quinn Martin um, actually has a prophecy over his life that he will be a provider and food will, prov will follow him. If you know Quinn, food follows him. <laughs> Stephen and I just recently went fishing with him and Stephen and I were struggling to catch a fish. Quinn's like, give me the pole. He casts out there and the, I'm not even sure it hit the water. And he just hooked the fish and reels it back in. And I'm just like, I quit. <laughs> but the point being is, is, can you imagine as Quinn continues to live into that gift, what that will look like if he allows God to continue to work into him and to live it out, what that would look like? So in closing, <clears throat> the goal is not certain comprehensive information. There is something better than that. You don't settle for less. You hold out for more. And that more is ongoing communion. Spiritual disciplines and liturgical practices are not just expressive means of showing devotion to God. They are formative practices through which the Spirit rehabituates and re-narrates my identity. Going forward, let's expand our list of spiritual gifts. Lord, I thank you for our time together today. Lord, I thank you that you come in and meet us where we are. And I thank you that you give us that opportunity to have communion with you. In your name, amen.